0: Morning. How are you? Good? All right. Uh, We are excited because uh, this morning we're rolling out our Haiti trip uh, for 2020. It's actually been two years uh, since we've been to Haiti, so we're very, very excited to go back. Uh, Let me tell you, this is uh, one of the most balanced mission trips I have uh, ever been on. Uh, This year we're going to partner once again with a worldwide village in Haiti, and our our aim is to accomplish uh, three things. Number one, We want to share Jesus uh, with the adults of Haiti. Uh, Number two, we're going to show and teach Jesus' love to the kids of Haiti through some uh, programs that we do with them. And then uh, the third thing that we're going to do down there is our team, who goes, uh, is going to help finish a well uh, by constructing the building around the well. And uh, maybe you just thought, oh, good, now I don't have to go because the Lord's telling me to go, but I don't know how to build anything. I'm sure you can use a hammer. Okay, This well, uh, in particular, is something that's been a dream of a worldwide village uh, for quite some time. It's going to be a major blessing uh, to almost 4,000 Haitians in the vicinity of the city of Luli there. As you know, you and I, when we need water, we just go to the drinking fountain or to a faucet where many Haitians walk uh, miles uh, every day for water. So it's going to be a huge blessing. Uh, before I say anything more about the trip, I, I want to show you a look at our, uh, our video. It kind of shows you what trips have been like in the past and what it might be like this year. So take a look. All right, so I, I encourage you to go. Um, I, I, I encourage you to be bold, to be powerful, uh, to, to, to rely on God's power not to go on a trip like this. You know, a lot of us, we don't do much outside of ourselves, and this is a great way for you to get out and help change the world. And uh, really, we want to raise the level of missions engagement in our church. And so we've set a goal that we want to send 10% of our adults on an international missions trip uh, next year. So there are about 400 adults who call this church home. And so we're, we're praying that we can send 40 of them, that's 10% if you hate math, uh, out on the missions field in 2020. So our, we're praying that we can see at least 15 people go to Haiti, and then we're praying that we can send 25 people uh, to Rwanda in Africa uh, next summer in 2020, which is also an amazing trip. In fact, our team saw 3,400 people come to Christ uh, from that trip uh, last year, which is amazing. So I, we really need 100% of you to be praying about this if we're going to send 10% of people out, and you can serve him uh, even if it's hard. Some of you, just the excuses already have come to your mind. (laughs) And you're going, I can't because I only get so much vacation, or I can't because I have little kids. You know, one of the things that was really inspiring uh, to a number of us at first service, we had a whole lot of people here because we sent off our uh, youth group missions team at first service, because they're literally, they're either in the parking lot getting on, or they've left already to Chicago. We have four leaders going on the trip. Three of the four leaders are leaving a one-year-old at home. To go and spread the... I and mean, they're not actually at home by themselves. The other spouses are... Going, you're like, wow, that's a sacrifice. Uh, but they're sacrificing for the gospel, which is amazing. I, and I know that you can do the same. All right. This morning, uh, in our message, we are continuing in the book of Luke in the Bible, uh, which is uh, one of four books in Scripture about the life and teachings of Jesus. Uh, we are going to be on page 844 in the Bibles under the chair. Uh, you're going to want to look at it today. Uh it is a tricky tricky passage um this is a passage that you've maybe read before and went what was this this is a passage that a lot of people skip over you've probably maybe never heard a message on this before unless you're going verse by verse through the book of a bible you'd probably skip it this is a passage that is not in a children's bible It is going to feel, at first brush, quite foreign to our modern Western understanding of life. So I'm going to try and work through this, see if we can unpackage for you and make sense of what is a really difficult, tricky passage in the Word of God. Okay, so we're in Luke chapter 11. Uh, We're going to start at uh, verse 14. It says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Well, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, if this is your first time in church in a long time, or maybe over the last couple of months you've been coming here and you really haven't been much of a church person, uh, this might feel strange to you that we're discussing this passage where Jesus is talking about uh, demons. Uh, maybe that weirds you out. Maybe it bothers you, maybe it scares you, or maybe you just roll your eyes at even the concept of it. So again, let me reiterate, this is, maybe you haven't heard this before, but this is a story in the Bible. Uh, It's not some weird story I pulled from the internet and put on the screen for you. And although it may seem quite foreign to our culture, Jesus, the Son of God, believes and teaches that there are indeed supernatural beings uh, called demons. And it's not like this, because this is exactly—I'll tell you what I believed uh, about this when I first started reading through the Bible before I became a Christian. And I think a lot of people look at it like this. They sort of say, well, this is just simply because Jesus and the gospel writers are from this pre-scientific age. And so, of course, Jesus has to label diseases or psychological issues as demonic because they just simply don't have the scientific knowledge to label them as otherwise— But remember, this is the Son of God. He has the scientific awareness of even what is going to happen in our future. And he labels it as a spiritual evil. In fact, one of the really important things to understand about the Gospels is Jesus actually differentiates between a demon possession and illness. So check out Luke 9.1. We went through this a few months ago. It says, When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to, one, drive out all demons, and to two, something entirely different, cure diseases. And so there may be a piece of you that thinks, okay, it just feels to me um, not modern, not smart, maybe naive to believe in like, the, the presence of evil figures. But I would just say to you, because you're operating on a plane of logic, so I'll come back to you on a plane of logic if you believe that it is logical that God exists or that angels exist, which about 90% of Americans believe, then I'll tell you, it is just as logical to believe that there is a spiritual evil if you already believe that there is a spiritual good. And the Bible says both are true, and they both happen to be waging a battle for your soul. All right. So what is happening in this passage? Well, the religious leaders, they're opposing Jesus, and yet they keep seeing him do miracle after miracle after miracle. In fact, it's so obvious to the people, like this person who's never spoken is now speaking, that they can't say anymore that Jesus's miracles are fake. And so the only thing left for them to say is that he's doing miracles and casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul who in the world is Beelzebub, right? Okay, that's the question. It was really just a fancy word for Satan. Uh, Jesus actually says that in, in verse 18. He makes the same association between the two. Now, the word technically means the house of Baal. Uh, if you read the Old Testament much, you might know that term Baal. That was a, a Canaanite, a false god. And really, in Jewish tradition, he was sort of the ruler of all dark forces of the demons, which is a Satan. Uh, Jesus points out the lunacy of their logic. Jesus is a good thinker. You do not have to check your brain at the door to be a follower of Christ. And he says, okay, <laughs> let me get this straight. If I were working for Satan, why would Satan divide his kingdom? Like, if Satan's main job is to influence or, or possess people even to do evil, why would he then be delivering people from evil? He, Jesus kind of stops short of saying, That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But it's essentially what he's saying, right? And instead he tells them, this is verse 21, he's like, what's really happening is that the kingdom of God has come upon you. God's power is on earth like never before. Really the only logical explanation for what's happening while you're seeing all these miraculous things right in front of you is that the kingdom of God has come. All right, let's keep reading through this tough passage. Uh, Verse 21 now. says, Jesus says, when a strong man fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. When someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Now, who's the strong man? Well, contextually here, which is always important when you interpret the Bible, the strong man is the devil. It's, it's Satan. And Jesus says that Satan is guarding his house. His possessions are safe. And his possessions are the people that he has influence over. But then Jesus says, but when someone stronger attacks, now this is Jesus, when someone stronger attacks, he frees the person, and now the plunder, that's the people, are his. And we see this exact story played out over and over and over again in the Gospels. You see people who are demonized literally become disciples of Jesus. And really this all alludes to this spiritual battle that most Americans don't want to admit exists. Okay, so if you went up to the average person on the street, say you just start walking through the lakes of Blaine right after this, right? And you say, excuse me, ma'am, I have a, a question for you. Are you on team evil or team Jesus? Uh, what's going to happen? Well, I will tell you that most people are going to strongly dislike your premise, right? Uh, they'd probably be offended, although it's not saying much. We're kind of offended <laughs> by everything. Some of you were just offended that I talked about being offended. Uh, but <laughs> what's going to happen, right? They would thoroughly dislike the premise that if someone is not following Jesus, that then therefore they are being influenced by evil. And so today I can almost assure you that many Americans would say, "Mm, I'm not on either of those teams. They would say, I am not a follower of Jesus Christ, but I'm not out there doing evil either what they would say is, they would say, I am spiritually neutral. And this is happening all over the place in the last decade in our country. Uh, many, many authors and journalists have written about this. It's called the rise of the nuns. Um, that's not N-U-N-S. Some of you are just picturing like nuns attacking, right? <laughs> nope. Uh, N-O-N-E-S. It's, it's the fastest growing spiritual demographic in America. I think now it's like 22 or 23 percent of all Americans check That they are none for religious affiliation. And this group of people, they've started to be studied, almost all of them believe in God. They're not atheists, but they are not followers of Jesus. In fact, they're not followers of any particular religion. They are spiritually neutral. So what would Jesus say to that? Because I feel like most of America thinks that Jesus would say, oh, it's fine, you're good, just kind of live a good life, and you just be neutral. But what does Jesus Christ, the Son of God, actually say to neutrality? We'll read the next verse. It's right in front of you. Verse 23. He says, Whoever is not with me, whoever has not surrendered their life to me, whoever is not following me, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. What he's saying, and I pray to God that you don't miss this, is that there is no such thing in the spiritual realm as being spiritually neutral. There's no such thing as being a nun in between. If you're not with him, if you're not following him, you are against him. To not decide is to decide. You've decided with your feet, with your life, that you're not following him. Uh, Do you remember... In the uh, Lord of the Rings, a movie. I actually thought this was in the first movie, but then some uh, in between services, I was corrected. Uh, some guy with a cape came up and corrected me. <laughs> just, he didn't really have a cape on. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, that was I was uh, being too stereotypical. Uh, it's actually in the second movie. You remember when uh, the, the good people they go? I think it's the Hobbits. They go to the the talking trees. I believe they're called the Ents. It's like, who puts talking trees in a movie? Like, you know what would be really cool? That's what the same people who wrote Grandmother Willow into a movie. That's a, that was a Pocahontas reference right there. Okay. Anyways, they go, I got off track. The, the whole cape thing just distracted me. All right. They go and they talk to the Ents, the talking trees, the, the good people. And they say, will you join with us, join forces with us against the darkness, against the dark forces? And the trees say that they're still thinking about it, and they say, really, we're not on anybody's side. They just want to remain neutral just in case. Until finally, at the 11th hour, the trees, they join the battle for good. And when they come, their rationale was this here's what they say They say, if we stayed at home and did nothing, doom would find us anyway, sooner or later. And there's a spiritual truth in this, okay? And here it is, it's a hard word. It's that when you die, you will be in one of two places. You will be in heaven or you will be in hell. There is no third option for people who are neutral. If you were to tragic—I don't know how often you think about this— if you were to tragically die in a car accident on the way home from here, you would be in one of those two places. And so what this means is if you are not with Jesus right now in your life, if you haven't believed that he died on the cross for you, you haven't given your life to him, that means you are not with him. It means you will not be with him in heaven either. But because many people think that they are still fine without Jesus, I'll just be spiritually neutral, I'll be a good person, Jesus tells us another parable about how life often works in order to show the fallacy of that very claim. So let's keep reading. This passage gets even more difficult. Now, verse 24 says, When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Now, impure spirit is just it's evil against the influence of evil. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and it takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Now, Again, maybe you've read this before in the Bible and you went, huh? (laughs) Like, what is he talking about? But in the context of this passage, I actually think it makes sense. And in the context of how most people's lives play out, I actually think it makes perfect sense. See, this is, those few verses, are the story of so many Americans. I would even say, perhaps even the majority. See, at first, we're told that the person has an impure spirit, that evil is affecting their life. Now, as much as people don't like to admit it, again, the spiritual battle is real. And for a lot of people, evil, the majority of people, evil is affecting and influencing their life. Now, that part's a bit hard to stomach, right? But it's not saying that everyone's walking around as a demoniac, like, ugh, you're going, okay, this isn't my life. That's not what I'm saying. So, evil is influencing your life. Now, I didn't start following Christ until I was an adult. And I'd say this is absolutely true of my life. I I think I would describe my life this way. I was playing for the other team without realizing it. And many of us, many of you in this room, we start off life this way, right? Often it starts in high school for people, the sort of the rebellious attitude. You see more evil come in. We start dabbling in sin, right? Maybe you snuck out to some parties. Uh, Maybe you even began to sleep around. Maybe you got addicted to pornography, For others of you, it didn't really take off to maybe a college. You had a couple nights in college, again, where you just drank so much, you don't even really remember what happened. You were sort of following the crowd. And for the majority of Americans, that's kind of their life of teenage years into their early 20s. But what is absolutely fascinating, if you study people, especially suburban people, what you'll see is that most people don't actually continue on that trajectory certainly there are people that do right they start dabbling in that kind of stuff in their teens and it just leads to decades of uh, alcohol abuse and drug abuse and prostitution and life is just a mess but the reality is for most people a level of logic and reasoning comes through and here's what happens They get in, maybe they're 23, they're 24, they get their first job, and they start to reason. And they say, okay, if I just continue drinking to excess on thirsty Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday, a little bit on Tuesday, I'm not going to be able to keep my job. I'm not going to be able to go where I need to go in my career. So if I'm going to be successful, I need to curtail my drinking. And they do. And then they also reason this. They say, oh, I've just been kind of living it up, you know, YOLO, you only live once, right? And so uh, they maybe had been sleeping around, they're using dating apps to just hook up or going to the bar to hook up, and they reason, well, I I don't want to do this when I'm 35, they say, what I want is I want a family, I want to be married, I want to have kids. And again, they reason that if I'm going to have some success in my life, I need to curtail my living. They reason that sin doesn't lead to earthly success, which, by the way, is what the Bible teaches. Read the book of Proverbs, for example. Okay, but what are they doing when they say, I better clean my life up some? Well, they're doing exactly what verse 25 says. Evil has gone, right? That stage of their life is not happening anymore, and they have swept their house, and they have put it in order. By their own willpower, they have begun to reform their life. They're trying to become a good person, a decent citizen of society, uh, with a nice suburban life, and 2.2 kids. You know what? For most of us, I would say this, is, this probably describes about 80% of our neighbors, right? And maybe even you. You know, we kind of led the rebellious life. I better be a decent person, kind of get my life together. There's another thing we can notice here. Verse 24. Look at this carefully. It says that the impure spirit, this is evil in their life, leaves on its own volition, comes out of the person. So this is not a deliverance of spiritual evil. There's no spiritual influence here to save the person. Evil has willingly left the person, and then they get their house in order. But why? This is a good question. Why would evil willingly, if they were already there, leave that Person and allow them to reform themselves to start being more morally acceptable to society. Why would they do that? I think we can reason to this. Okay, well, what if they didn't? Okay, what if evil continued to reign in their life? So now they're 26 or 27 and they continue to drink, and drinking's become a problem. Really, you could label them as an alcoholic. Life's spiraling out of control, so they start trying drugs, their relationships are falling apart, maybe they're cheating, everything is falling apart. What happens to people like that? Sometimes it perpetuates for a really long time, but for a lot of people, eventually they hit a rock bottom. And what happens to so many people when they hit a rock bottom, you know? Who do they cry out to? The only one left to cry out to, they cry out to God. They say, God, I am powerless over what is happening in my life. And so I just need to cast and throw my life upon you. And so evil reasons that in fact it would be better to leave and let the person think that they are actually indeed more fine on their own. Because if it continues as is, then they're going to give their life to Jesus. See, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way. I think this is subconscious for a lot of people. But there are a lot of people in America that actually clean up their life in their 20s. They avoid sin so they can avoid Jesus. Right? Because if you get your own house in order, and you, compared to the people you work with and your neighbors, if you become a decent person then you don't need to become like those spiritual people that just have to throw their life upon God and everything is about God. You can just be spiritually neutral, good person on your own. By avoiding sin, you can avoid Jesus. Just kind of stay neutral. I actually think there are people like this even in the church. Even in this church. They know how to talk like a Christian. They know how to walk like a Christian. They're even trying so they can kind of fit in with the other people to morally kind of get their life in order so they can look like a Christian, but Jesus does not have their life. There was never repentance. Or they turned their life around. There was never weeping in the grace and forgiveness of God. There was never any saying like, Lord, this would be so painful for me to give up this part of my life or to obey you in this particular circumstance, but because you say so in your word... I will. There was never any wrestling against sin. In fact, if you were to talk to them about the sin in their life, or talk to them about the demands of being a disciple of Jesus, they would shake it off. They'd probably even call you old-fashioned or narrow-minded. They are not a slave of Jesus Christ. In fact, they're not even a servant. They're just a spiritually neutral person that happens to be hanging around Christians. And so what happens to people like that? And what happens to people, this is the majority of America, suburban life, who are just out there, spiritually neutral, going through their 20s, into their 30s, maybe even into their 40s, trying to be good. What happens? Well, it says in the, it says in the passage, Jesus says, evil eventually comes back. And what will it see? It will see... That the place is still spiritually empty. Sure, yep, swept up in good order. They look more acceptable to society. But Jesus Christ is not there. There's no son of God saying, you shall not pass. There's no Messiah there saying, and this child is mine. And so Jesus teaches in this parable that the evil is actually very pleased to find this condition. In fact, it's probably exactly what they hoped would happen when it left. In fact, evil is so excited, we're told, that the the evil spirit gathers seven of its other evil friends saying, come, 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 look at this. This, right now, right now, this is the perfect situation the circumstances are now ripe for us to wreak way more havoc than we could have when he was 17 or when she was 25. And they tell seven of their friends, now, see, now that they've swept their house clean and they believe that they can reform and change their own life, now they'll never turn to God no matter how hard it gets. Now and only now can we ruin them. And See, the devil has set you up. He has set up so many people to think that they don't need a savior. That in a sense, They can sweep their life together again and be their own savior. And see, it's once you believe that, that then evil brings its full assault. You know, as a pastor, I will tell you that most often this full assault happens to people in midlife. Not in your teens, uh, not in your 20s. See, what happens is this process of going through your teens, your 20s, sometimes even into your 30s, this process of kind of getting our life in order, and you look like a decent suburban resident, the pride of that blinds us from the propensity that we still have to sin. Okay, sure, you can stop drinking all the time, you know, kind of be in family life now, but the reality is you still absolutely have no power over the sinful urges inside of you. And without Jesus, eventually evil returns and it will reign again. In fact, what does the text say? It says, and it will come back worse than ever. Jesus says the final condition is worse than the first. And why is that? Well, it's because the consequences are now sevenfold. Okay, this isn't some one night stand. It's not some fling you had when you were 21. Now, at 45, at 37... It's an affair that may destroy your family. In evil is rejoicing. Perhaps it destroys your family, creating a ripple effect for generations. And how your own children look at marriage, or worse yet, God. In midlife, it can be about some horrible grab for control or power or selfishness. It ruin a family, it can ruin a career. I find many people in midlife end up just being com- completely crushed by these moments because they thought, they believe so strongly that they have the power to reform their own life, to make things right. They thought they had the willpower to be good, but they find out that they don't. And so many of them, even though it's right in front of them, They just try and start their lives over again. They get married again. They get a fresh start. They move somewhere new. But without Christ, the cycle just repeats itself. I can think of others whom I've known personally who they feel evil comes back in their life. Their life starts turning into a mess. And eventually they feel the regret of their decision so strongly. And they don't know how to feel forgiven. And so they eventually give up and they take their own life but what they need is Jesus as we read earlier Jesus is the one who can bind the strong man he has power over anything if If your life, if you're just sitting here right now, and your life lately has just been this downward spiral of mistakes and sin, and you feel like there is no way out, there is a way out, and his name is Jesus Christ. If you're here, and you feel like, I've been trying to be good, I've been trying to fit in, but I just can't, and I keep messing up, and I don't know how to save myself, you can't, but he can. Jesus Christ can save you. He can rescue you. He can redeem you. He has the power. Nobody else has it. He has the power to change your life if you surrender to him. You won't feel it. You won't get it. You won't experience it if you stay in neutrality. It's only when you cast your life upon Jesus. If you're sitting here right now and and it's just hit you like a ton of bricks that maybe at some point in your life you were just, you were set up by Satan. You thought you could just kind of reform your own life and be good and remain spiritually neutral, but your life has fallen apart anyway. It, it just, Honestly, it's time to just surrender. If you don't surrender now, I can assure you that it only gets worse. Surrender now. Trust in Jesus. You cannot fix this by yourself. Only Jesus can fix this. You cannot live in freedom and in love without surrendering to the one who showed you his love by dying in your place on the cross so that you could have freedom. Please, surrender to him. There is no neutral. Neutral is just a setup. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. He loves you. I pray that you surrender more and more of your life to him. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for every single person in this room, young and old, wherever they are on the spectrum, that we would be a people that surrender to you, that we could see today that staying neutral, staying in the middle is just evil wrapped in a nice package. Father, we thank you that despite the fact that so many of us have sat in neutral, we've sat on the side, that you still love us and you pursue us and you chase after us and you die for us. God, now as we just sing of your love, may we just worship you not just with our minds, but with our hearts. In your name we pray, amen.